0: In this podcast, Pamela Branchik talks to Professor Michael Kyrgios, the Vice President and Executive Dean of the College of Education, Psychology and Social Work at Flinders University. So first one, why did you decide to study psychology?
1: Okay, well, I was the first born from that first wave of Southern European migration, post-war, my parents came from a country that had been torn by not just torn apart by the war but then a civil war, and so there was great poverty and my parents decided that they would migrate to offer their children a better future. so I was born here, first born, and you know Australia wasn't the country that it is now. it was pretty insular um, and you know, there was a, a degree of uh, racism. There was a degree of, I guess, not feeling as engaged. I didn't actually know English when I went to school. I, there were no televisions in those days, certainly not in our household. Um, and the only people that my parents knew were people who, who also spoke Greek. That clearly changed. My parents studied English, went on to, you know, to integrate. But as a child, clearly um, I, I felt, totally disengaged, or at least, you know, not, not part of the scene. And so that caused, I think, some angst in me, some conflict, some anxieties. Some, um, and very early on, I decided that I wanted to be a psychologist. So my parents were very big on education, and, and you know, that's, that's what they were here for, for their children to become educated. And, you know, I read very widely. Uh, we had a very kind of philosophical view of the world, you know. Greeks and philosophy, you know, (laughs) Uh, even though they they were relatively uneducated, there's still a cultural kind of overlay to to that. So I was pretty well read and read Freud when I was in high school and decided that I was going to become a child psychologist. That's all I ever wanted to do, Um, either that or open up a coffee shop.
0: You know. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, coffee uh, is very important for one's sanity, isn't
1: it? That's right. Well, you know, psychotherapy yes. it always starts with, a, Would you, Can I get you a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, oh. So, um, I, yeah, psychology was what I wanted to do. And I did do, uh, uh, I did follow that um, dream and, and became a, a child psychologist, a clinical psychologist. I was one of the first people to be asked. Uh, if I wanted to do a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, it was sort of unheard mm. of in those days. So I did that and I was the okay. first fellow in clinical psychology at the Royal Children's Hospital.
0: Wow. Um, so maybe that's a good segue into what influenced your decision to work predominantly in academia.
1: That's right. Well, I, I actually took a year off, having studied all, you know, for, for many years and um, actually thought of uh, going overseas and working overseas. But um, uh, the Royal Children's Hospital rang me up and said, can you please come back again? And my alma mater, Latrobe, rang me up and said, can you come back again? And I decided at that point that I really loved the research. And so I decided to take the job at Latrobe rather than at the Children's Hospital just for a little while. I was also very young and didn't have kids of my own, and I felt that as a student under supervision, working in the children's hospital was one thing, but as a solo practitioner, there's a kind of... um, Uh, you know, you don't quite feel that you have it all if you don't have your own family and children. There's the imposter syndrome. So I thought I might work for a few years, do some research, and then eventually actually got a job at the Royal Melbourne Hospital teaching developmental psychology to medical students, and I worked in psychiatry. I realized that my impact, So, and part of my job was actually to do clinical work in the hospital, to do research, to teach medical students. And so it was, it was just the best combination of, it was everything that I ever wanted. But I realized from the clinical work that I was doing that I was very limited as an individual. There was one of me and I could see maybe 20 people a week by the time I did research, by the time I did the teaching. And I just, I found that really frustrating. I was eventually asked to take over the clinical training program at the University of Melbourne and that kind of influenced my my impact a little bit. So that meant that I could teach people. So that meant that my impact was not just on the 20 people that I saw, but on, I don't know, 50, 100, 1,000 as, as these students graduated. At that point, I became very interested in obsessive compulsive disorder, which was not considered to be particularly treatable in those days. And we had developed a cognitive therapy, a psychological therapy that seemed to to be quite effective. There were some new medications coming out that showed that for some people, the combination of the psychological treatment and the medication treatment would be very, uh, very useful. And so I started doing some research. We started to develop manualized treatments that were even more efficacious. The students started to roll them out. And so again, the the, the impact was increasing, I was part of an international consortium that was developing this, these treatments, and then I got really, really greedy and thought, what if I put these online? Now, I was convinced of this by my own kids at this stage. Dad, you, know, <laughs> you don't have to see someone to give them the information that you're giving them, why don't you just put it online? And I went, ah, poo-poo. No, no, no. It's all about the relationship and the psychotherapy and, you know, kind of these old, older ideas about about psychotherapy. But yeah, essentially we did put our manuals online and got some funding to um, not only put them online but then to evaluate them. And lo and behold, they were just as efficacious, particularly for people in the moderate to severe or, you know, or, or mild to severe. People who were very severe clearly could not, um, use the online treatments without, without support, but actually a lot of people could. And this was a great way to prevent chronicity, to prevent people you know having these problems over long periods of time. It was a great way to nip it in the bud for, for adolescents. And we know that the onset of OCD really peaks it, during that adolescence and and early childhood uh, peri- uh, early uh, adulthood period along the way, I kind of changed jobs and now I was at Swinburne, and the federal government gave us the money to put together the national e therapy center so we a group of us put together online treatments for anxiety disorders.
0: What are the highlights for you when you reflect on your career?
1: Uh, look, it always has to be about the people that you you work with and mentor and supervise. I now have students of mine who've got, first of all, who've got children of their own. So they're kind of my spiritual grandkids and my spiritual children. As I always said, I don't supervise, I adopt. It's my culture, right? Um, and, you know, they were in and out of our house. My wife, you know, would would look after them. We would be invited to their do's. Always, always maintaining appropriate boundaries, you know, around the work. But mentoring has to yeah you have to have a care factor in the mentoring so for me they're the highlights i've got students now who are professors who are associate professors you know so um i've got students who've now got you know um uh, pre-adolescent children and or adolescent children uh and you know for me that's that's always the highlight the second highlight is of course the friends that you make along the way and and you know i still have Fantastic friendships. So there's that, that personal aspect of it. And I don't think that you can survive in, in the world, actually, without that sort of social aspect. Even now during COVID, we keep telling people, socialize, socialize, socialize. Um, so that's imperative. They offer support, they, they offer motivation. Um, in terms of my professional um, um, highlights, I've been able to attract about $22 million worth of research funding. I've written just under 200 papers. I was the president of the Australian Psychological Society. Um, This was the kid that was, you know, that was an outsider, then became. Actually, as I keep telling them, the first president of the Australian Psychological Society, that was from an ethnic background, although that's not true, strictly true, because we had a couple of Jewish um, uh, presidents as well, and we keep kind of, you know, uh, stirring each other about that. I was chair of the APS College of Clinical Psychologists, again, another dream. We were able to get Medicare rebates for psychological services from the Howard government. That's a highlight. In terms of my own personal highlights and my own research, just the number of people with OCD whose lives we've been able to um, improve through our treatments, um, through gold standard treatments, the the impact of that on hospital systems, on mental health systems, the friends and, and, and colleagues that I've made overseas. And so, um, again, being able to facilitate further research, uh, greater depth. You know, we're all limited in, in what we we do, but, you know, you, you give it a little and somebody else takes that idea and then, and, and then moves it along. And then I guess just the development of the National E-Therapy Centre, the development of the OCARD Lab, Obsessive Compulsive uh, Anxiety and Related Disorders Lab. The, we, we put a book out uh, in 2016 on the self in, the, in understanding and treating psychological disorders uh, through Cambridge University Press and we had the sort of Freud of the day um, uh, write the forward saying, this is the book I've been waiting for kind of thing. So, you know, there were so many highlights, right? <laughs> That's
0: amazing. That's just, yeah, it's wonderful to be at that point and just fulfil the joy of all these achievements. Yeah.
1: And now, that I'm at, now that I'm at Flinders, I've really been able to bring all of that together all of the research, all of the administrative and organizational um, and leadership, I guess, expertise or skills that I've mustered over the years, I can now bring it into sharp focus during a very, very challenging time for for all universities. Mm -hmm. So that's also a highlight in and of itself. Uh, My my aspirations very early on were very, very meagre. I wanted to I wanted to finish up my career as a senior lecturer because that's that's oh. as far as I thought I could get. like I didn't, I didn't know. I was first in family to go to university, so I didn't know what was possible. Um, and, and you know, and, and my, I guess my advice to students now is never underestimate yourself. Don't question. Just keep moving forward because you know, and and, and this also speaks to mental health issues as well. I think we often question ourselves and question our own ability to manage things or, or to, to move forward, because the unknown is unknown. But it's not the unknown that's the problem. It's the questioning of oneself in managing the unknown that is the, 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 the challenge.
0: Thank you, Mike. You were previously director of the Technology-Based Psychological Treatment Laboratory. How have you seen the development of digital healthcare support mental health care and improve outcomes?
1: Look, I'd have to say over the past 20 or 30 years, the biggest impact on, on care has been the, the development of, of the digital capacities, right? Be it something as simple as telepsychology or, you know, like talking to people over the phone, because there are skills involved with that, or having things online or having wearables, having apps. These developments have had a greater impact on mental health care than any pharmaceutical development over the past, you know, um, well, I'd say 40 years to be, you know, 30, 40 years to be frank. I think giving people self-agency in their own care, I think giving people access at all hours and immediate access to evidence-based information, this is what will improve um, literacy, self-management, and the burden on the mental health care system we just as economies just do not have enough resources to help every single person with a serious mental illness and part of the problem is that we are spending a lot of our resources people resources in particular in looking after people with mild to moderate to severe problems who could who could who do have the capacity to facilitate change in their own lives with some structured support. And essentially, that's what these digital technologies allow us to do. They allow people to structure their own experiences in such a way that they can support themselves through most of the the challenges that they face, which would then leave the workforce able to support those with the greatest need. The other thing about this is that these digital supports can support not just professionals, but actually peer supports, peer supporters. So there's nothing as powerful as a message from someone who's had the lived experience in giving advice or guiding or or, or supporting someone who has the mental health challenges right now this very second, because the number one lesson in mental health support is optimism, social support, number two, right? And then come the, the more specific guidance, guides in, in, in terms of how to face your fears, how to balance out the advantages and disadvantages of one decision over another decision, um, how to problem solve, how to improve your social skills or how to improve your anxiety management skills. I mean, the information that we give people is essentially guidance information, people will then take on board some of those um, principles or some of those um, uh, strategies, try them out for themselves, tailor it for themselves, and then learn to evaluate whether it's working for themselves. So we, as practitioners, not only impart all of that information, but we also impart what I think is the forgotten skill, and that's how to be a scientist. Most of us panic and we stop thinking rationally in challenging situations because stress does that to us. That's how we're wired. We're wired to fight or flee. And sometimes fleeing or fighting is the wrong response. It's okay to do it when you've got a saber-toothed tiger chasing you, but it's not the right thing to do if your boss has asked you, to correct uh, something in a report that you've written. Or if a friend looks at you rather quizzically and you interpret that as, oh my God, they hate me. Or you know, if, if you're feeling a heart palpitation and you start to think to yourself, oh my God, I'm getting a panic attack and I'm gonna die. You know, so those are overreactions. And so part of what we do is help people to think scientifically about their own experiences and work out ways and then evaluate the efficacy of the ways that they've worked out to manage those problems. So we can put all of that online, or we can put it together in a way that makes it easier for people to take on that information, irrespective of their uh, education levels, irrespective of their current mental health literacy, irrespective of their gender, their culture, their situation. And as the technologies have developed, we have become more sophisticated in how we can impart that information. So at at, at Swinburne in the National E-Therapy Centre, if you were a female of a particular age or a male of a particular age, you would get a different set of visuals. The information would be presented to you in a different kind of a way. So that's much more individualized. If your symptoms had this constellation as distinct from that constellation, you would get a different treatment because it would be individualized. Nowadays, we've got artificial intelligence that can integrate not only the information that we give the the algorithm um, about the types of symptoms that we have or our age or our cultural background or our gender or whatever, but actually it will pick up information from our wearables, right? So... The, the, the smartphones or, or even the smart watches or the, or the Fitbits or whatever, it will also be able to integrate information from big data, how many times you've gone to the doctor, what prescriptions the doctor's given you, maybe even how much exercise you've done at the gym or, or in, your, in your daily life, how good your sleep is. It will be able to integrate all that information and further individualise the intervention for you. So this is the direction that we're going in. It will become much more sophisticated. But that's not to say, that is not to say that the human factor, the human contact is not necessary because more often than not it is. But the humans don't need to do the bulk of the work. The learning can happen automatically.
0: Amazing. there is often a stigma around speaking about mental health. What do you think we can do to encourage more open and honoured conversations?
1: Well, I think the first thing is we've got to give permission to do so. Right? So Okay Day was on last week. We have Mental Health Week in uh, mid, mid, mid-October. These events need to be celebrated. And not only celebrated, but during those times and then beyond those times, we all need to model that behaviour there is no shame in feeling anxiety. It is the human condition. It is how we are wired. It has helped us to survive as a species. It's there for a reason. But I think there has there have been cultural shifts, and I think in the post-Kardashian world, we need to not aspire to perfectionism, perfectionism in terms of emotional control, perfectionism in terms of looking the best socially, you know, or, or wearing the right things or 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 having the right job or having gone to the right school. So inclusion is, is a really important part of this uh, as well. It's not just that we must model our acknowledgement of our mental health challenges, but we also have to embrace everyone and differences, whatever those differences may be. And, you know, th- there's a lot to be said about the need for social, I don't like the term tolerance, because tolerance is, is a term that, 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 that is distant. We don't tolerate other people. We should embrace other people. The species has survived because of our diversity, right? Climate changes have occurred throughout history. Social changes, geographic changes have occurred throughout history, throughout our evolution. And the reason the species has survived is because of our diversity. And part of that diversity are the mental health challenges, right? There are some people who are hypersensitive to danger, to threat. So these are the people who didn't rush into the caves. These are the people who didn't rush out of the forest into the open plains. But they survived. However, there are some people who were more impulsive they rushed out of the plains and were able to hunt the, for the, the meat that we needed or to grow the, 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 um, the grains that we needed to survive as a species. These were the people who were impulsive and were able to run into the caves to look around to see if the caves were safe. So both extremes are necessary for our survival, both fear avoidance right, the the people who are kind of sensitive, but also impulsivity, people who don't care about fear. Um, Now, these extremes are also associated, though, with particular problems in modern urban life. And we just have to accept that that's just the way that our culture is, and it will change and we'll have more or less acceptance of some of these things, but we need to have almost like a, a social contract with each other that... We need to all understand that we as individuals and as a species survive because of each other and because of the, 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 the acceptance and the, the celebration of each, of, our, of each other's tendencies. People don't ask to have schizophrenia. People don't ask to have this tendency or that tendency. These things just happen, and they happen because of what goes on socially during uh, critical developmental periods. It happens because of things that are um, embedded within us through genetics. And it also happens because of what we now know are epigenetics, that interaction between what the environment offers and what we come into the world with. And it's that interaction that determines who we are and then has some impact again on our genetics, which has impact on our behaviour, which has impact on our genetics. So... It's no one's particular fault that they have a particular mental health problem. Now, are there some cognitive and behavioral problems that are challenging to us as a society? Yes, there are. Pedophilia, you know, um, sociopathy. These are things that we know are problematic to the social contract. And those sorts of things we need to talk about, we need to be aware of, and we need to know what we can do in order to avoid them. Again, it goes back to this epigenetic thing. There are some people who are predisposed in some sort of way uh, to, to be more aggressive or, or more impulsive or whatever, but actually if we um, engage with them, if we help them to feel more secure, if we help them to be more attached to the social milieu, they won't end up. Being the sociopaths or the pedophiles or whatever that we um, that we know certain conditions, um, uh, certain um, environmental conditions um, can lead to. So again, it gets back to this social contract, I think, and that we are each of us obliged. We have a we have a moral responsibility to talk about our own inner world um, and, and and to help others feel that they're a part of it and to have permission to talk about their inner world without the threat, you know, the, Just, the threat of being yeah. rejected.
0: When you are recruiting for a senior executive to join your team, what are the key attributes you look for in the person apart from their... Academic
1: track record. Sure, I mean clearly that's that's important because the best predictor of future behaviour is past behaviour, as they say, particularly in in terms of academic uh, uh, output. But look, at the end of the day, we work in organisations. Organisations are made up of people. You need a person who can fit into your culture, into your into the gaps that you have. You know, sometimes it's a balancing act between finding people who are the same as me versus different to me. Uh, sometimes you need to have people who've got different skills to the skill set that, that already exist. I, I think you need to make a systemic decision about what is the type of person that would best fit the organisation for your particular organisation to meet its current challenges. Um, it's always very, I guess, contextual. At the end of the day, there are some people who are really flexible and can fit into any kind of organisation, you know. So they're great people to have because they will they will mould and they will develop and they will evolve with the circumstances uh, surrounding them. You know, I, I hear lots of different views as to, some, you know, this person's not as um, personable, uh, this person's too harsh, this person makes very harsh decisions. You actually need such people, particularly during difficult times Times, other times you need people who are more democratic more more collegial, uh, because when times are good they 're the people you want to have to collect people to come up with collective ideas often it's good to have people who who have both those skills who can who can go backwards and forwards we We look at the circle of, of skills you know and you know the, and they go from the greens and the yellows, all the way to the purples and the blues. And, and you, you actually, as a leadership team, you need all of those sectors of inclusive of creativity, ability to operationalize, ability to implement, ability to, to evaluate. You, know, you, you kind of need all of those skills in a leadership team. The other thing though, is that leadership is, is always a must. People need to be able to take leadership in their own particular way. It doesn't have to be a loud kind of leadership. It can be a soft one. But leadership is about self-agency. It's about uh, finding opportunities, having the initiative to do so, or having the ability or, or the, the, the propensity. You know, sometimes people need permission to, to be creative. Uh, so th- even that in itself is a, is a propensity and, and part of the leadership spectrum. You know, they're, 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 they would be my sort of general views about this. And sometimes you just have to take a risk. I r- truly believe in gut. If your gut is telling you one thing, you've got to listen to it. You can ignore it, but you still have to listen to it and make a strategic decision to ignore it. Um, and I've done that in the past. I've gone for people who my gut was telling me you were the right people. My head was telling me, oh, I'm not so sure. Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong. And if you can get it right 70% of the time, you are an expert.
0: Sounds good. (laughs) What are your top tips for aspiring leaders?
1: Well, I think, and I think we touched on this before, you've got to believe in yourself. Even when you doubt yourself, you've got to believe that you'll go through a period of doubt and if you you know, you use your, your the, the data available to you, the information available to you, the process available to you, you'll come to a decision at some point and you just have to trust your gut feeling. If you can't come to a decision, then it's a difficult, challenging situation. So at the end of the day, there may not be a right answer. And so again, take a risk. Don't take all responsibility on your shoulders. I think, you know, you've got to consult, you've got to take in information, you've got to listen to ideas. Um, But as a leader, and particularly if you're the ultimate leader of of the particular group, it's on your shoulders. And you've got to be resilient enough to, to be able to fathom the notion that you might've made a wrong call, And you do make wrong calls, right? As I say, if you get it right 70% of the time, you are an expert, you know. So be prepared to make mistakes, but don't take the burden of responsibility on yourself for those mistakes. The responsibility is usually on either changed circumstances or something that went wrong in the process of decision-making and and, and reflect on that and reflect what might happen, what, what you might do differently next time. But I really believe it's, it's about believing in yourself, not being able to predict doom and gloom. Doom and gloom is only going to lead to more doom and gloom. You've got to be problem-focused. You've got to be solution-focused. Um, even in times when there are no obvious solutions, when there are no obvious ways through a problem, you just have to believe that whatever it is that you do, is the best that was possible under those circumstances and keep moving forward, being compassionate to yourself and being compassionate to others' mistakes, um, acknowledging those mistakes, you know, being open. It's really the same message as the sort of the, um, the, the mental health message, you know, uh, let people into your inner world and, and help people feel comfortable to allow you into their inner world so that there is that communication I don't think you always need to be democratic and I don't believe you always need to come up with a consensus. It's great if you can, but you don't always have to do that because often you are privy to information that your team around you is not privy to. And so sometimes you might be supporting the, the level of management that is above you. And you're privy to information at that level that the people below you or your team may not be privy to, and sometimes you just have to make a hard call. And sometimes that means that, that includes a hard call about your own team. And so you can't always be completely um, open about these things, but you have to be as genuine as possible. People know when you're not being genuine. And so I have given people hard news have explained why, have, have given them the the, the, the the genuine reasons why, and because there is a history of being genuine, they take that on board and they really appreciate that. And the leader does that. They, they can give good news, they can give bad news, they can give hard news, they can give easy news. Um, but you always have to do it from the perspective of being genuine and have a kind of a style as well. And, and, and people understand, look, I'm using my hard hat today or my hard head. I, I, I hate to do this, but, or today is a day of celebration. We don't have to be, we don't have to be hard. We don't have to, you know, we, we can just celebrate. But it's really that kind of believing in yourself and not, not doing too much second questioning. And I know that there's a lot of hints in, or a lot of principles in that that actually conflict with each other. There's there's a law in psychology that's called the Yerkes-Dodson law. And it's 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 like a, a graph that goes up, right up like this, right? So this is anxiety or and, and this is performance, right? So performance increases as your anxiety increases, right? Up to a certain point. And it could be anxiety, it could be self-doubt, it could be self-questioning, whatever. Beyond a certain point, though, performance decreases. So it's trying to stay in that, in that middle ground. And so that's why sometimes it's, it's, it's a bit like clinical work. You, you're dealing with uncertainties. As long as you're dealing with the uncertainty, you're actually in the, in the peak performance part of that graph. But if you're not dealing with the uncertainties and ignoring them, well, your performance is not going to be good. And if you're over-concerned, with uncertainty, you're going to be more anxious, more perfectionistic, have high expectations of yourself, and therefore your performance will, will actually decrease. So leadership is a little bit like that too. Sometimes you can be a leader that leads you know, from the stalls, and, and, and clearly you lead by leadership. You have to be there. You've got to get hands dirty. People know that if you're giving out um, an instruction for people to take leave, you've got to take leave too. If you're asking people to take a pay cut, you take a pay cut too, and you take a bigger pay cut than, than others. Um, so you, you've got to lead by example, but you can never ignore it. You can never ignore um, uncertainty and anxiety and, and the responsibilities of leadership.
0: Thank you, Mike.